Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I can't believe they caught us. I know, right? Because when the first group of cops moved in, I was like, I'm going to make my patented sharp move to the right and draw them toward me. So you could just, you know, gallop across the road. We don't gallop. Horses gallop. We're llamas. Yeah, we lamabulate. And I'm like, hey, suckers, watch me lamabulate. Pay no attention to the black llama. Chase me, the white llama. First of all, I'm not black. I'm white and gold. Second of all, don't think I don't hear what you're getting at. You did everything right. I did everything wrong. That's what you're implying. Whoa, wait, go back. You are totally not gold and white. You're black with blue hooves and a blue snout. Uh, it's called a muzzle. Nobody calls it a snout. And so now, not only is it my fault we got caught, I also don't even know what color I am. No, dude, I totally didn't mean it that way. It's just that, you know, we're so close, it freaks me out that we're not seeing the same thing here. Do you think something happened to you during the chase? Like... Did you get hit in the head or something? No, I did not get hit in the head. There is nothing wrong with me. And we are not going to talk about this ever again. Blue and black. Gold and white. I am really worried about you. I hate you. Today, the nose looks back at 2015. And now, Colin McEnroe and the seven little nostrils. That's right. It's, uh, <laughs> we're doing something we've never done before uh, today on the nose. First of all, let me say about that intro that it actually... Uh, ran in February, and uh, in February, the hashtag llamas event uh, and the dress that everybody argued about, they happened pretty much within 24 hours of each other. Uh, so as I was going back today, I just noticed that. And uh, so we decided we'd revive some of our favorite intros from the past. So, yes, we have seven nose panelists here today. We're going to review stories that were noseworthy during 2015 and uh, talk about why. So I guess I should sort of say who they all are. I'll go over to the back row right now. Not everybody is going to be on mic at all times. So with us, producer and guitar hero Jim Chapdelaine uh, from Trinity Cine Studio, the man who makes wonderful movies happen in Hartford, uh, James Hanley uh, from Theater Works, uh, the woman who makes theater work uh, in Hartford, Tanisha Dugan. Uh, and then sitting closer to me right now is a critic, writer, and recently blogger for Commonweal, Rand Richards-Cooper, uh, and international scholar and Collinsville celebrity Rebecca Castellani, uh, writer, poet, and educator Kate Russian, and Trinity professor Irene Papoulis. Whew. All right. We got through that part anyway. So we're going to begin with our first topic. Rand is going to lead them on this one. Uh, Go set a Watchman, which sold a record-breaking million-plus copies when it was published in July and won the Goodreads Reads Choice Award of 2015 for fiction, was essentially Harper Lee's first draft of her American classic To Kill a Mockingbird. And Go set a Watchman, Atticus Finch is not the American hero we thought we knew. Many fans could not understand how the old Atticus Finch could be this Atticus Finch of Go set a Watchman, a segregationist who spouted racist ideas and joined a white citizens council akin to the Ku Klux Klan. So Rand, why was this topic so noseworthy? Well, uh, it's noseworthy first of all because this is this is arguably America, modern America's best loved and most read novel, a novel that made its way into almost all high schools uh, at some point. So it, it, for the reasons you just described, the earlier book, Ghost Set a Watchman, constitutes a pretty large revision to our understanding both of Harper Lee and, uh, as you mentioned, of Atticus Finch. So I think that's why it's noseworthy. I, I would make two points and raise one question, then we can talk about it from there. 
um, the first point that almost everyone who's read it agrees on, there might be a few outliers, but there's general agreement that it's really pretty bad. Uh, and its, its badness is interestingly related to the goodness of the subsequent novel. There are excellent reasons why this wasn't published. When you read it, it's really kind of shocking for someone who loved uh, To Kill a Mockingbird to see that this is not an entirely grown-up novel. It's written in what I would call the sort of prevailing idiom of women's magazines of the time. There's a sort of prim, cheery chipperness to it that seems not entirely adult. The best sections of the novel are the novels that uh, are the parts of it that deal with the kids, and those are the parts from which she made the subsequently far greater novel. So this okay, second point, real fast, because we have a okay. buzzer that buzzes. When okay, we're second point is the changed picture of Atticus. I won't sum that up. You summed it up nicely. We have to understand him somewhat differently. The third is the question: Should this have been published? There's a lot of controversy about the circumstances in which it can be published. Uh, Harper Lee is very, very old. There's a lot of suggestion that it was published sort of against her best interests. So the question is, should a, an inferior book that was not published during the writer's career be published if it's like way below the quality that she or he would have liked? And I think there are great arguments on both sides of that. Okay, we've got a whole bunch of writers and literary scholars on this mini panel. So, Rebecca, you go first. Should it have been published? Uh, no, I do not believe it should have been published. It was very, in my mind, clearly against her will. She has been pretty much incapacitated for years now, and her sister died, who was her main caretaker, and I believe HarperCollins published it uh, for money. Um, that being said, from a scholarly perspective, I do think it's a really interesting glimpse into the first draft process of a writer, and I think from a writing perspective, it is of enormous interest for me personally, but I don't think it should have been marketed to the public as the prequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, that marketing was amazing. Yeah. I mean, and, and I wonder, um, why didn't she destroy it if she really didn't want it published? You know, I mean, I think I think it has literary, I think it's interesting to read what somebody wrote in the past. I mean, it makes me think that I want to, I want to, I want to read to my, to Kill a Mockingbird again, with that in mind, and see are there are there is there racism in there in in this novel that everyone thinks is anti-racist? You know, there must be in some. I, I feel like yeah. there must be. Um, that makes me want to read it. But anyway. so, Kate, you actually have an oeuvre, you know, and so someday you will join the choir invisible. We hope it's not for another 50, 60 years. Uh, do you want people rummaging around in stuff that you didn't publish and bringing it to light? I mean, is that invasive? My future probably rests in the hands of a grad student. I'll be grateful. Uh, but talking about uh, the Harper Lee book, my book group is actually reading To Kill a Mockingbird, and it begins with a very detailed description of Atticus and his family. They were slaveholders who built their um, their their power base on people they owned. Atticus was a lawyer and a state rep. Of course, he was intimately involved with this small town Jim Crow community. The the thing that um, amazes me and surprised me about the whole debate was the response of boomers who seemed betrayed by the uh, characterization of Atticus in Go Set a Watchman. And my question is, are they reacting to the book or to the movie? Mm -hmm. Atticus Finch is not Gregory Peck. It's another an, another. So, so work you're of saying art. it was consistent, more consistent than people thought? I'm not saying it's more consistent, but if Harper Lee based the character of Atticus on her father, and he was deeply entrenched in this small town, Jim Crow, deep south Alabama. 
So, Rand, you get to answer your own it's, question. It strikes me as altogether plausible that in real life a person could have done the things that Atticus Finch did and still at, at another point in his life belong to one of these very dubious citizens uh, communities that were essentially racist, racist and uh, John Birch friendly, Jim Crow friendly. So I, I think that's an important enlargement of our understanding of Atticus and that's good. The, the question about – as a writer, no, I wouldn't want people rummaging around my stuff and publishing it. But there's a way in which big writers become part of the public domain. And um, even writers I've cherished who we've learned through their publication of the letters were kind of jerks, uh, Hemingway, uh, Philip Larkin the poet, Robert Frost. This in no way makes me dismiss them as writers. It adds to our complex understanding of them as persons and as artists. This publication of this book, deeply flawed, a bad novel, adds a great deal to our understanding of Harper Lee, the problems she faces as a writer, and the creation of Atticus Finch. To me, ultimately, I get the other side, but it's a slam dunk. It's a good thing this thing is published, even though some people cynically profited from it. Oh, that's oh, it. We're out of time. Oh, so, um, Kate Russian is going to go... Uh, change seats with Tanisha Dugan, and as they're doing that, I will begin to set up uh, the next topic. Uh, this is Irene's topic. She put her, it was the per- first topic chosen. She really wanted this one. So we talked a lot about Donald Trump this year. We probably talked more about Donald Trump than about anything else. I was reviewing all the shows today. Uh, so Irene is going to focus in on Trump's peculiar use of gender-laden imagery. At the first GOP debate in August, Trump clashed with moderator uh, Megyn Kelly of Fox News, and afterwards he said you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. Uh, a spokesman for the candidate later claimed Trump was talking about her nose and not about menstruation. Um, Megyn Kelly, to her credit, said, well, she wants to, wanted to end the de- debate. She said, let's put a period at the end of that sentence. I don't know if that was supposed to be funny or not. But, um, this month, uh, talking about Hillary Clinton, um, Trump said even her race to Obama, she was going to beat Obama. She was, she was favored to win, and she got schlonged. She lost. He also complained about Clinton's late return to the debate stage after a commercial break here in the December debate. I'm watching the debate and she disappeared. I know where she went. It's disgusting. I don't want to talk about it. No, it's too disgusting. Don't say it. It's disgusting. All right. So, Irene, why is this newsworthy? Why is it intriguing to you? Yeah, well, it's nose. I think, um, as Rand said, it's noseworthy for obvious reasons, um, just because it's a sort of a fascinating story. He's a fascinating character that people on the nose are interested in talking about. Um, I was particularly interested in his in, in Megyn Kelly first, you know, the way that she sort of emerged from by asking the question, you've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs and disgusting animals. Uh, she sort of emerged from the, the what what a lot of people like us see as sort of this right-wing machine. And for a minute, we all said, wait a minute, Megyn Kelly, you know, maybe she's kind of smarter than we thought. Maybe she kind of has an interesting... And then his clash with her was, um, you know, helped to feed that idea of sort of a certain respect that I got for her that I never thought I would have knowing. But then she kind of receded back into the to the right-wing machine after that. But just for a moment, we sort of said, wow, Megyn Kelly has some interesting ideas, and that makes us want to see, you know, her clash with him again on the on the debate that's coming up in January, you know, and so that's another story. I'm trying to make this quick, but I think um, the fact that he called her those things, and then also the other noseworthy thing is the way it became a meme, like people started tweeting to Donald Trump about their 
periods and Conan had a Donald Trump stick that you could put in to see what, if you were ovulating and it had a face of Donald Trump that you could stick in your urine and see and they showed that, you know, there was a video of that and everything. So um, that's all very, very noseworthy. But so I have a few questions about it. One is, could anything that Trump says be a deal breaker? You know, and um, I'm uh, my my. Well, actually, should, I, should I ask that? As well, opposed to we, answering we may it? be the wrong people to ask because nobody here has a deal with Trump and nobody's likely to make a deal with Trump. But, you know, Rebecca, one thing she's saying I think is intriguing, which is that for women hearing this stuff, it creates a, a, a deeper bonding, say, with a registered Democrat and Megyn Kelly uh, than would have existed otherwise. I mean, maybe there are bonds that are more important than political bonds or maybe you don't see it that way. I just think that anyone that can get behind someone that is deriding women for the process that enables the human race to continue is pretty ridiculous. Um, I find his use, his prose, the way he speaks, not endearing whatsoever. I think that everything he says offends me. I just recently watched, the, I think it was The Daily Show, had a group of Trump supporters in a room and were asking them, if he said this, would you stop voting for him? And they got more and more extreme, and the hands stayed up. So, you know, I think there is a shockingly large population that doesn't care that he says schlonged and all sorts of other outrageous things, and they're just happy to have a politician that's not speaking in politicians' rhetoric. But I don't think that's a good thing. It, it kind of defies conventional politics. I mean, everything about Trump does, obviously. But particularly this idea that you – I mean, you don't want to alienate one half of the human race – but maybe that's not happening. I don't think it doesn't alienate. Yeah, them. I don't that's think the they're being thing. alienated. You know, I, I he has completely rewritten the gaffometer for himself in ways that no one would have predicted. I'm still convinced that there is some disqualifying utterance yeah. that he might be able to make. However, one would have given a list of them that he's already made and they didn't work. Now, I, I can imagine things that he might say that I think would end it, but we won't know what they are until it happens and suddenly, for the first time, unlike the other nine times, there is a sudden galvanized disgust that, that reaches a critical mass. Two other points. I disagree with that so strongly. So you Who's think, I mean, I, I, he is I, I, totally I a reality this, star yeah. and he's playing so you think to if that. you publicly yeah. called Hillary Beast. the C word, I hate to use that cloying yes. evasion, you, you don't think that would do it? I think, that'll, I think people what will he, vote for him more. If he he okay. folks. I want to hear from Tanisha because we haven't heard from her. You think that he has a different status. He's not a political figure. He's no, a reality star. No, he's a reality star. star. Absolutely. And as a connoisseur of things like love and hip hop and black ink crew, I know that this kind of language is is entertaining and he is absolutely entertaining. We cannot take that moment away from him. And the farther and farther away he gets from any kind of authenticity in terms of being a politician, the more and more people love it. The yeah. more press he gets, the more we limit. talk about him. I don't think that's going to end, so. but there there is a limit. No, like if I he mean, just used the N word openly in his speech, saying, "Oh, so and so is just we the expect N-word. it." I think that's the I, I issue. That you say Mexicans are rapists to say that 11 million Muslims should be deported. That's right. That you know, did, it that, didn't why then. doesn't that, do, you know, I mean, how it just seems like that, that's exactly the reason why people like him. It's not like they like Absolutely. him in spite of that. It's great TV, I too. Every time he goes head to head with Megyn Kelly, Fox News' ratings go through the roof. I mean, right. yeah. the only reason why they're coming back with this, you know, debate with the two of them in January. Yep. Money. Good ratings. But the Good two of them, even though it's all the others, too. Up there's the buzzer. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have, what are we going to do here? We're going to have, um, Irene is going to sit down and Tanisha's going to sit down. Jim and James. That's easy. Jim and James are going to come to the microphone. I will talk slowly because this is James's topic, so he's got to get in position. Uh, we're going to be talking about your cheating VW. Uh, Volkswagen owners were glaring at their diesel uh, Volkswagens in September with great suspicion after it was revealed that the automaker's diesel vehicles were designed to cheat 
on emissions tests. It came to be known as the Dieselgate scandal. So in order to offset all that negative publicity, Reuters reports that Volkswagen is planning an image offensive right now to try to uh, regain its former luster. So, James, take us into this one. This is the one that you picked. Uh, Tell us why. Well, I think for the start, I, I, I sort of quarrel with the term scandal in dealing with it because I think that everybody involved knew what they were doing and that it is just a part of the system now. And I was reading just before the show a, an article in the Harvard Business Review from September where somebody was saying, oh, well, this is a great example of the uh, system working that uh, people, bloggers and people who were sort of investigating, it came from the ground up and discovered this horrible thing. Um, and that this was an indication of how the sort of corporate world was being reined in by ordinary people, which I think is uh, – I mean, OK, it was the Harvard Business Review. It wasn't Wharton. But still, it's the same pattern of thinking, which somehow indicates that everything's OK. But really, Volkswagen did this because it could. And I think that it's also been – there's been a sidetrack saying that this is somehow besmirched German industry. But – it's not about Germany, really. I mean, Volkswagen is a worldwide co- corporation, and they needed to get market share in the U.S., and they were willing to do anything they could to do it. And I think that there are plenty of other companies willing to do it. I think we still haven't heard, really, whether anyone else has this software that turns a switch and, and, and changes the way the car performs. We're surrounded by stuff like that. And I think it's an indication, really, of the sort of corporate governance of the world that is, emo- that is emerging. I think it's a huge issue, and I, it's, it's one that really um, I don't think gets addressed, partly because we don't have many journalists anymore. We don't really have anybody reflecting on what this means and how it, how it is that, for instance, you're, it, you work for free for Facebook and mm-hmm. they profit from your actual use of Facebook mm-hmm. and the actual sort of corporate paradigm that lies behind that is not really parsed enough that enough people are involved to say, wait a minute, doesn't happen. All right, we're going to move to the next panelist here. Uh, Randall Golask, because he's the Eastern Seaboard's leading expert on German shame. Uh, but, uh, but so, is there Jim. a word for that? Yeah, I'm sure there is a German word for this. Nein-Gen-Haltenheit, so, I believe. Right. So, uh, or Farfagnugan. Right. Uh, so, um, Jim, you know, some car companies do bounce back from things, stuff like this, but it's usually accidental de- defects. Sure, sure, they do. But um, I think what, what uh, James is speaking about is our sort of corporate overlords, right? Um, I was lucky enough to see uh, The Big Short the other night, mm-hmm. which sort of explains all of this in great detail about the banking industry. And and they knew it all along. And that, so I'm sure that Volkswagen knew this uh, the entire time. And, and maybe there was a, a stratified layer of people who knew it. But it wasn't just one guy. No, exactly. It wasn't just one guy with software. So I'm sure it's, it's um, endemic and systemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're being monitored right so, now. Rebecca Castellani, youngest nose panelist of all time. Um, uh, how does this sort of affect your generation? Speak for your entire generation, please. Um, uh, would you buy a Volkswagen? I think I asked you this maybe you on the did. show. You did. Yeah. I have a revised answer for you, too. As a consummate millennial, I will speak from this perspective. Um, well, when we first talked about this, I had just totaled my car and I was in the process of buying it. It took me two months to buy a new one and I did go and test drive a few Volkswagens and look at it. And I loved the cars. They actually, I think, were you know the best handling car I drove. I ultimately did not get a Volkswagen because I could not get behind the idea of an entire company 
putting, you know, the wool over everyone's eyes. And I went with the Subaru. So that's how I feel about it. I can't, you know, I don't like these big corporations that think that they can uh, lie and cheat their way to better emission standards. All right. You voted with your feet. All right, man. You get to take <laughs> us two, home. German two, shame. Two points of interest here. One way, one of the many ways in which Germans are very different from Americans is that um, they have a capacity, as you know, Colin, one of your favorite words is schadenfreude, which is taking pleasure in the, in the misery of other people. That's not just my favorite word. It's my favorite activity. <laughs> right. It's actually, you're an honorary German. But um, Germans also have a great capacity for what you might call selbst schadenfreude. So that's taking pleasure in your own miseries. And in a weird way, in a perverse way, there's nothing Germans like more than when Germany performs terribly on the international stage, whether it's in a sports event or whether it's politically or, or in this sense. That all of the headlines in the in the German newspapers were all about yeah ja, das schmutzige Deutschland the filthy Germany and there's this quality of like luxuriating in this self abasement sort of cabaret isn't it that I yeah <laughs> that I absolutely love point two is um, it, it, the the uh, I would offer this as a stock tip to anyone there's a forty percent discount on Volkswagen stock because of this disaster the German government is going to rescue this brand because it's totally identified with German industry. I'll take a, you know, maybe I share uh, the, the merry Marxism that's been offered up here, I suppose, to some extent. However, just as a stock tip, you can get Volkswagen stock really cheap now, and uh, five years from now, you'll have made a lot. Well, uh, the Jim Cramer of the nose. All right. Uh, no, we have to stop there. We've got to take a break. Betsy's being very strict with us. We'll come back with James and Tanisha and Kate and somebody else. Excuse me, Mr. Hill. Yes, Miss Wolf. And thanks again for being one of the first celebrities on our new show, Hey, Hey, It's Your DNA. It's, it's just that um, I was wondering if we could cut out the part where we learn that I have orc DNA. I know, just like in Lord of the Rings. Isn't that fascinating? It's just that I'm in the public eye, and being an orc has some you know, negative connotations. I think you're not seeing how well you come across in that segment. When you get the news that you're one sixteenth orc, there's this split second where you look like an orc, but then this tenderness sweeps across your face and the audience is going to say, look at that sweet, lovely girl who just happens to be an orc. Part orc. It's just that orc has connotations of squat, ugly... Flat-nosed, filthy, bow-legged, sallow-skinned, fanged humanoids with a taste for human flesh. Yes, yes, yes. But there's a lot of new scholarship being done on their art and balladry. They've been misjudged, like the Vikings. They're not like the Vikings. They're a little like the Vikings. Look, it's not like we're saying you killed Frodo. Could we please lower our voice when we're talking about Illing K. Odo Frey? It could be worse. Chris Brown found out he was cousins with the Vaders. Big surprise. All right, so uh, that's the topic that's coming up a little bit later on the show today. Uh, it's, the, of course, the story of Ben Affleck trying to conceal uh, some, par- some part of his past revealed by his DNA on a show hosted by Henry Louis Gates. We're not going to be doing that right now. Let me tell you who's at the table, though. We're doing a different topic. Uh, Tanisha Dugan is going to bring this one out with Kate uh, and Jim and James. And the topic is um, the moment where President Obama began singing Amazing Grace at the funeral of Clementa Pinckney, one of those killed in the Charleston, South Carolina shooting. Uh, and I don't have to say anything more about it. We'll just hear it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. 
truly amazing moment. Uh, you know, I gave the panelists 12 topics to pick from. This is the one I would have picked. Uh, Tanisha Dugan picked it, so she gets to say why. Well, there's no denying that what we heard just now was a black man singing a gospel song, and he was the president of the United States. Unsurprisingly, a Negro spiritual was used in a time of pain as a salve. It marked a shift in Obama where he seemed freer to display a part of himself without fear. He noted recently in this GQ Man of the Year interview with Bill Simmons that he is indeed moving through the end of his presidency without fear. And this was our first glimpse of this new, might I say, blacker attitude. It's been called transcendental. Nosers, I want to know what about this cultural point, if at all, was transcendent to you? James, why don't you take that one? What was transcendent? Well, I thought it, it, it's really um, seizing the agenda and taking it in a new direction. And I think that the whole it, – it marks this turning point where he doesn't care about all of the naysayers and he's escaping his handlers. He's in a period of his presidency where he's finally feeling that he can do certain things. Obviously, there are still some limitations, but I think that this was like a visceral, emotional sort of connection that he clearly, genuinely felt and felt liberated by the point, uh, reaching that point in what must have been, I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like for him over the past few years of everything he says about him, everything, the essence of who he is, is, is besmirched and, and, and constantly criticized for who he is and all of the meanness and, and, and personal attacks that he's been through, that the energy expressed at that moment where he'd sort of turned to something different and, and brought himself into a new place. I thought it was stunning. I, it was really amazing. I, I think that um, there are going to be some interesting things that he's going to say in the next year. Jim, uh, John, all the critics of the New York Times picked their favorite concert, their 10 favorite concert performances yesterday. John Karamanika uh, picked number one was Obama singing. He said that Obama sings like a lecturer, contains sonorous and lingering on certain words for emphasis, pulling sound and found out into three hard syllables. The singing wasn't ecstatic, but emp- 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 empathetic. I can say it, empathetic and pained. Even as the room filled with palpable joy and release, President Obama remained grave. There's a way in which music kind of bypasses you know, everybody's circuits and just goes to a different place. Yeah, he, he was transcendent at that moment and it was um, dismissive of any technique or skill because he just sang from his heart. And even as you just played it just now, for me, it was goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was goosebumps then. And, and, um, and I think you have to ask the question. Um, it, it, we, people wonder how he's changed things. Uh, that was an incredible moment. And you have to think what would the previous president have sounded like trying to do that. And I, as a sound effects designer, um, one of my favorite things that I never got to design during that was the sound of pharmaceutical jars opening from his handlers as George Bush would go off script <laughs> and his enormous shake of, of pills. But, um, but when Obama goes off script like that, it's, he takes it to another place. He takes it higher. He raises the level of conversation. You and know, he did it through song. Kate, this uh, happened. This kind of amazing confluence of things. And the, the, obviously, the Charleston shooting had just happened. It was very near the Fourth of July weekend. Um, the Supreme Court decision uh, on uh, gay marriage equality uh, came out, and the White House turned rainbow colors. And a few days before that, Mark Marin interviewed the president. The president actually used the N word uh, in, in the course of the interview. I mean, in, a, in an instructive way. Um, and it just seemed like the there was a, the scales were tipping somehow. Yeah, he certainly expressed a boldness. He embodied a boldness. 
there are so many layers of meaning in the fact that he chose that song because Amazing Grace was actually a Protestant hymn that was written by a former slave ship captain. And the black church, African-Americans, took the song and turned it into something else. Uh, And he, President Obama, sang it in the old black church Mm -hmm. style of singing Amazing Grace and not the Protestant hymn style. And also we can't forget the fact that he was standing in an African-American, I'm sorry, an African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was the Freedom Church, which was a church that was founded to give autonomy to African-Americans who uh, stepped away from the Methodist Episcopal Church. Oh, all right. That's all. We have to be ruthless about this. All right. So um, let me look up and see. For so Rebecca is coming up to uh, present this one with Irene, James, and Tanisha. So James and Tanisha stay. Jim and uh, Kate get to leave uh, or have to or however you want it. And I'll set things up for Rebecca while she's getting, making her way to the mic. The dress was a viral photo and meme which became popular on February 26, 2015. The viral phenomenon revealed differences in human color perception, which have been the subject of serious ongoing scientific investigation in neuroscience. Um, The meme originated from a washed-out photograph of a dress posted on the social networking service Tumblr, and a dispute over over whether the dress was pictured was blue and black or white and gold. Uh, touched off in the first week after the surfacing of the image, more than 10 million tweets mentioned the dress. So, Rebecca, why was this noseworthy? So every year we have a big mystery that the Internet freaks out over. Last year it was that missing plane and Reddit trying to figure out what happened to Heyman Lee. This year it was the dress. And all the way over in Edinburgh, Scotland, I was doing my master's, and we walked into class. It was a very serious philosophy class with a very serious English professor And the first person to hand up, it was a lecture, so we were allowed to speak, was about the dress. And that week's topic was the innocent eye, which is an idea outlined by Nelson Goodman and uh, Ernst Gombrich in the early uh, 20th century. And it's the idea that there is no such thing as an innocent eye. Anytime you look at anything that is preconditioned by your memories, your perception – So the dress really highlighted this issue that color is not something that is physical of an object but dependent on your own perception. So people that got really had existential crises over the dress were really having a crisis as to understanding the difference between physical objects and the way we view those objects. So we had this whole about 80 minutes of our 90-minute class were devoted to this dress. And this professor nearly walked out, I think, at numerous moments. (laughs) I was one of the people that viewed it as one color for 40 minutes then saw it as the other color, never to see the first color again. And it still causes me great alarm. Only this morning I had a debate again with my significant other about what color this darn dress is. So my question to you guys is, first of all, what color do you see the dress? <laughs> all right. Irene, what color is the dress? And it is an existential I looked crisis. at it this morning. I was like purple and brown oh, to me. Man. I mean, okay, that's really weird. <laughs> but it was an existential crisis, wasn't it? I mean, it was sort of like how can we be the same how people? How can somebody we... else not see the same thing that I? I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, for so much. But uh, you know, and and I think it's interesting that it's it, it's in a way more satisfying, or it's it's safer to talk about it, uh, talk about the dress, than to talk about an idea that we disagree about or something like that. And it's, it's so you know, there's just like a complete purity of discussion that you that you can have with something visual like. And it is a discussion about the no innocent yeah. eye. One can even say. <laughs> Denise, is that how it plays for you? It does. I mean, I saw it the same way you did, Rebecca. Yep. For like the first two days, I saw it as gold and white. Yep. And then gold and white. Yep. 
was I, blue and brown or blue and black or whatever the heck it was, and it never... Never has gone back. Yeah. But I loved being able to have this argument with people about, yeah. like, no, no, no. I saw it both ways, so I know it's true, yep. that it's actually both colors. All right, so, <laughs> so, so James, uh, Irene has called it a metaphor uh, and also something that we can safely disagree about. How does it work for you? Well, in a way, I think that's true, but it goes to the heart of visual art and perception, really, that has always been true of exactly how do you perceive image. And it, this happens to be a particular one that, to me, um, I mean, I look at it and I see that. I, I, I agree with Irene. That's what I saw, the, 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 the colors that I saw. But I think that there's an expectation. People want to be comforted by the fact that there's an absoluteness, that you can somehow quantify and say, well, this is absolutely red. This is definitely red. But and you can say, if I see it as red, everybody else must exactly. also. Which is not and, true, they And said. of course, yeah. red uh, can be described in many ways, many combinations of colors, and different people will see different shades. Watermelon, burgundy. Yep. Exactly. And <laughs> it's something that in the midst of all of this constant electronic chatter about stuff that you're constantly sort of sharing thoughts about what you see, it's really brought to the fore the whole nature of wanting absoluteness, wanting to know exactly what is this color, is this wrong, is this true, or is it not true? And I mean, it connects with so many things. And it also connects with, for instance, the upcoming ability to manipulate, like, for instance, virtual realities, which will obviously use that different perception to create anxiety, for example, to create a journey where the fear that you're experiencing is real because you're not quite sure of what that absoluteness is. Uh, and I, and you I are like, creating anxiety. What about the monitor? Isn't it just depending on what kind of computer monitor you well, have? Well, that's another thing. That, that's no, another I think that theory was, was rejected. All right. I got to hear the business buzzer. We have to go. Irene uh, goes. Everybody else stays put. We'll be back with our third and final segment. Sometimes he's aware that they're drawing him in Lucy was pretty, your best friend agreed Well, still pretty good, yeah The two things that I learned this year, always ask politely for bacon, jalapeno, mac and cheese, and never shoot a lion, unless it's trying to eat your bacon, jalapeno, mac and cheese. Today's show was produced by Colin and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Big production, thanks to Betsy Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rachel Dolezal, but as a black Bill Curry. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Here and Now staff saying schlonged, go to WNPR.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, there's a holiday special. We'll be back live on Monday. And now, back to Colin. Oh, man, I'm going to be so late for this appointment. Why didn't I leave earlier? So stupid. Viva say there was heavy traffic. But that's not true. There's hardly any traffic at all. Wait, who's talking to me? It is I, your Volkswagen Diesel. Viva say there was heavy traffic. A deer ran across the road and was killed. I guess... We could do that. Anyway, we're here. And there is nowhere to park. Park in the handicapped spot. What? Park in the handicapped spot. And when you get out of the car, walk with a pronounced limp. But I'll get a ticket. In my glove compartment, you will find a reasonable facsimile of a handicapped tag. Hang it from your mirror. 
You know, I don't even think you say handicapped these days. I don't care. I knew you were a diesel. I never realized you were such a weasel. Hey, that's a little poem. Okay, I'm going to go in now. Do I look okay? You look fabulous. Thank you. Wait, hold on. You're a pathological liar, aren't you? My phone was dead when you called. I will totally read your book of poems. I'm sorry. That was my last piece of gum. I can't believe my car is such a lying sack of nuts and bolts. All right, so uh, another intro from the year. That was about the uh, Volkswagen story we talked about a while ago. This is our end-of-the-year nose, where seven nose panelists come in and change on the fly, tag team uh, uh, seven different topics from the year. This one's going to be led off uh, by Kate Russian, uh, and it includes Rebecca, James, and Tanisha. This is the controversy that actually emerged from the Sony email hack. Uh, Henry Louis Gates hosts a show about finding your roots, uh, and uh, Ben Affleck appeared on the show. And then, after the interview, objected to the inclusion of a lot of material about slavery among his uh, slavery practiced by his ancestors. Um, and those emails came out, uh, and Gates said that he and the producers decided not to include the information about Affleck's slave-owning history, I mean his family's slave-owning history, because they focused on other stuff they found more interesting. But ultimately, PBS and Henry Louis Gates basically wound up kind of apologizing for having done this. So, Kate, what does this say to you? Well, when I first heard this story, my question was... Uh, why Ben Affleck was so upset about this fact. Doesn't he know that most of us, whatever our color, have uh, connections to slave roots? It's the history of America, the United States. Uh, I wonder why he thought it was appropriate to use his power to try to uh, suppress part of the story. But now when I think about it more, I realize, of course, our whole country is engaged in this very contentious debate about history, slavery, representation, who gets to tell the story, who gets to have the power. And all over the country, on campuses, um, various students are questioning the uh, uh, slave roots of their uh, campuses. I uh, think about Brown and the gentleman who wrote uh, and recently published Ebony and Ivory. I think about the debate that's going on at Princeton about whether or not uh, the name of um, one of the buildings, uh, uh, if Woodrow Wilson's name should be taken off of one of the buildings and schools because of his segregationist history. And some people might say, well, that's silly. That's his students being silly. But it's, it's not a silly issue. Um, uh, because it really is a question of values and power, whose um, ideas are deemed important and who gets to choose the representations. So um, both uh, Tanisha and Rebecca noticed that there was kind of an interesting synergy between this story and something that happened on Project Greenlight, where, in fact, a director and Matt Damon kind of clashed. Matt Damon, of course, uh, is the other boy from Boston. Uh, you can turns out you can take the boy out of the bo- out of Boston, but you can't take the Boston racial demons out of the boy. So on the uh, fourth season premiere of HBO's Project Greenlight, um, African American female producer Effie Brown uh, had kind of a tiff with Matt Damon. You'll hear it right here. I just would want to urge people to think about whoever this director is, the way that they're going to treat the character of Harmony. Her being a prostitute, the only black person being a hooker who gets hit by her white pimp. We brought up to each other. So I I think on the surface, they Mm -hmm. look like one thing, but they might end up giving us something that we don't want. And we're talking about diversity. You do it in the casting of the film, not in the casting of the show. Whew. 
Wow. Oh. Okay. Ooh, exactly. yeah. All right. There's some gasps going around the room here. So, all right, Tanisha, you get to jump in on that one. Oh, uh, well, uh, there's the piece that Kate just brought up, which is so true that that the essence of the conversation is about sort of denying all of our parts in our American story. And and that is a lot of what's happening with Matt, with Project Greenlight, the idea that the power lies behind the screen and he can't quite see that. And therefore he thinks, well, if we cast black on screen, no one will care or know that the decisions that are being made behind the scenes are not being represented by the people on screen. Um, we are in a place of making the white patriarchy comfortable, and we're starting to see those threads come apart, and that's just kind of where we are right now in America, and it's scary for us all as we navigate what that means. All right. Uh, so, um, Rebecca, you noticed the same synergy. I don't know if these things really are connected, whether this is a Boston thing, but maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I did a— uh... No, I watched the. I binge watched this whole show, like watching a car accident. I couldn't look away, um, mostly, and I didn't really care at all about the actual progress of this film being made. And it's worth noting that the film they actually decided to make was not this original film about this black prostitute. It was a film quite literally titled "The Leisure Class," about two white guys at an upper class party getting up to some shenanigans. And the director they chose was a very privileged young white man. But what I couldn't stop watching was Effie Brown, the lone black voice and the lone female voice, became the scapegoat for everything that went wrong with this project and was completely undercut the whole time by her white male counterparts. And it just was shocking to me that in 2015 this is still going on in Hollywood. And She's one of the producers of Dear White People, which I yes. think is yeah. important yes. to note. So, yeah. James, this is – well, I'll just let you do whatever you want to do here. I don't even need to set you up, do I? <laughs> well – well, to me, I think that the fact that this conversation is going on now is a good thing. That's brought out some things. But I think there's an underlying problem, which is always that, that the serious conversation that should be had is actually derailed by an obsession with celebrity and the fact that, that many times celebrities are seen as somehow having some uh, special sort of role and that it was somehow... Uh, uh, really, the whole story of the Henry Louis Gates episode was about Ben Affleck. But Ben Affleck, neither he nor Matt Damon seem to me to be particularly smart about these issues. They're not that. They're not that smart guys. I mean, they 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 just don't come across that way. But the unfortunate consequence of this obsession with celebrity is that you end up with somebody like Henry Louis Gates, who really could get the conversation going about the roots of slavery and the roots of the money that drives the banks coming from slavery and actually have that conversation. But his image has been damaged by this absurd thing of acceding to a celebrity's bad behavior, essentially. Oh, that's all we have time for. All right. We have one more topic here. So we have to change on the fly. Jim is going to come up and lead us. Kate's good. Kate and Tanisha are going to stay. And so is James. So all we have to do is Rebecca has to switch with Jim. All right. This is so complicated. Um, and once again, this is the end of the year news. While that uh, change is going on, oh, here comes James. I don't even have to vamp. Let me just uh, quickly set it up. This is a story that came to us in September. Ahmed Mohammed is a 14-year-old Texas student. He likes to tinker. He was arrested for bringing a homemade clock to school because school officials thought it was a bomb. What followed was an outpouring of support for Mohammed, uh, who many said was targeted because of his Muslim faith. President Obama invited him to the White House. Mark Zuckerberg invited him to Facebook HQ, which is even 
more important than the White House, as we know. And he got a scholarship to space camp, whatever that is. All right. So, Jim, you picked this one. And you think it says a lot about tech and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Yeah, I think it talks – it speaks to the, the uh, stratification that we have here. Now, he would typically, if he was a white kid, be the kind of kid we would embrace. He's a science geek and a nerd. On the other hand, he did build a clock that looked like a bomb. So there's a protocol for building a clock that looks like a bomb, and that is you call the bomb squad, and you call a SWAT team, and you evacuate the school. None of that was done. What was done is he was taken to juvie and handcuffed for three hours and interrogated uh, without a lawyer and without his parents even knowing. And since then, uh, he had all, the, all these people step in for him, and he moved to Qatar because they offered him a full scholarship at this sort of fancy science school, and he's suing the town for $15 million. And I think if that was, you know, Billy Clark and not Ahmed Mohammed, that this conversation wouldn't be taking place. It'd be like, oh, Billy, put that away. Because he had previously shown his science teacher who said, that's really good, don't show it to anybody. Or put it in your in your backpack. He's 14 years old, so I understand why they're alarmed. But follow the protocol. So that that's my my thing. Two Americas, and uh, one of them has a protocol, and one apparently does not. Um, you know, Tanisha, I don't know where you want to go on this. I'm intrigued by the way the system, like. I was saying off air that the four topics that we had that had to do with the digital shaming culture, you know, that really making people feel bad about themselves, didn't get picked by anybody. And this is kind of the reverse. It's, it really ultimately worked, sort of. But the outcry worked and some right answers were reached after a wrong answer had initially been reached. Or do you not see it that way? No, I do. I think that this was sort of the one time people felt because he was actually making a clock that they could write wrongs that had been made in the past. And so, yeah, everyone jumped on to sort of support this kid who was, you know, could be the next Steve Jobs in essence. Um, And so there is that piece. But I am also as interested in this sort of criminal justice system that exists for brown people and that doesn't exist for others and that he had to navigate that as a 14-year-old by himself um, and that the outcry didn't necessarily shape itself towards that larger global problem, but more specifically about this particular child and how we can save his one life. And Texas, right. Um, (laughs) And Texas. And and James, all of this (laughs) happened before San Bernardino, before Paris. Um, I I do also, I wonder whether things would have gone even worse if this happened, say, a week from now. Well, I think that's an interesting question. I think that, that this whole issue of the sort of like, especially in schools where essentially... Um, students are powerless in a very important way, but when anything happens, brown people really catch catch the heat, and that there is the, the, this whole idea of having some sort of a procedure is thrown out of the thrown out of the uh, consideration. And so, um, you do, in in this particular case, you actually had this kid who had a kind of charisma about him that sort of overwhelmed the negative that could have come. But had it come after San Bernardino, I'm sure that that would have been very different because the current atmosphere is completely different. And so it's something that is a... um, His timing was very lucky for him Mm -hmm. in the sense that he had a human personality. He actually managed to preempt the nature of becoming an object, being become, you know, like the the thug object or the threat or the Muslim is going to blow up the school. 
uh, and he escaped that, which I think is a very interesting thing considering the nature of how these things get manipulated really quickly. Um, so it's a very interesting new place to be uh, that we are now where I think Muslims are having a really, really tough time. Kate, you've got a minute to wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, I think it, it, this case brings up the whole larger question that Tanisha alluded to that more and more black, brown, and working-class kids are being treated with violence in schools. And what happens when you're not the smartest kid in the, on the block and you don't have access? And I think back to the African-American uh, young lady who was slammed to the floor uh, by the, uh, the, the officer, the school officer. You know, she's not getting invitations to the White House uh, she's not getting uh, scholarship offers. There is a higher and higher percentage of kids who are being um, apprehended, arrested, expelled, suspended, and it's going lower and lower in the grades. Younger and younger kids are being um, put into the s- criminal justice system through the schools. That's what I'm concerned about. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, James uh, Hanley wants you to go to Trinity Cine Studio and watch great movies. Tanisha Dugan wants you to go to Theater Works, watch great theater. Jim Chapdelaine wants you to listen to the Shinolas, uh, Connecticut's most amazing band. Kate Russian wants you to read more poetry. Irene Pabulis wants you to think more deeply about literature. Uh, Rand Cooper wants you to read his blog and go to restaurants that he likes. And Rebecca Castellani wants you to come to Collinsville uh, or travel abroad. Either one, she'll be happy. I'm so grateful to all of these people and all the other Nose panelists. I work with such fun people. And then I work with the amazing Josh Nalea and Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf. What a great year it's been. Let's have another great year in 2016. One of my resolutions for 2016 is to get better at timing. It's part of my job here at the station to make sure everything runs on time.